everyone, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library Podcast. I'm Dave Maitamanawala, you know my co-host Garrett McGilvery, and joining us today is the founder and executive chair of Allied Properties, REIT, Michael Emery. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, us. guys. Thanks for having me. Good morning. So why don't we dive right into what's happening right now? Allied sure. sells $1.3 billion worth of data center. I, I don't know if that's, has it closed yet? Or is this something that's potentially in the news in the air, in the ether? No, no, not to not to put too fine a point on it, but it was one point three five billion. Yes, um, <laughs> and it closed last Wednesday. Okay, so it is closed. It is done. Um, we're developing a good relationship with the purchaser, which is an extremely strategic buyer of these kind of assets. They operate. Uh, data centers globally. Right. Um, they are originally uh, a Japanese telecom. Um, and I think in 1989, they acquired um, their first data center outside of Japan. And they have since expanded on that. They've got a portfolio in Asia. They've got a portfolio in Europe. They've got a portfolio in the United States. And now they've got the best portfolio in Canada. Hey. Yeah, there we go. That's exciting. And by the way, so we had originally had the podcast scheduled for last Wednesday and uh, our intern Connor was uh, messaging saying, oh, maybe I should have messaged him earlier. And maybe he just did. He wanted to push us off just for a week. And then he was like, oh, no, he was closing. A it, that's exactly right. <laughs> we were we were closing that day. And and while we you know, while the process had gone perfectly, almost from the beginning, um, it's still nerve-wracking uh, until it's done. Oh, yeah. But it got done at about 10, 30, 11 in the morning, and, and we felt pretty good about it. That's easy. <laughs> I don't think I've ever closed something that early in the day. Yeah. No, it was, it was planned impeccably by both parties yeah. and by the legal counsel representing both parties. Um, it, it, it was a really enjoyable, albeit difficult transaction, difficult in the sense, I mean, it's an enormous asset. The level of due diligence was can, intense. Can, can we talk about, because I don't think, when most people think about allied properties, they think about light industrial building, best in class, unique office space all across Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Ottawa, Calgary, right? Right, yeah. Um, but I don't think they think about data centers. No, most don't. Um, the story there is is fairly simple, and I'll relay it quickly and efficiently to the extent I can relay anything quickly and efficiently. But <laughs> in, uh, in 2009, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, the owner of 151 Front Street West in Toronto, which is Canada's only internet hub, put it up for sale. Uh, RBC... Sorry, I guess No problem. What is an internet hub? Well, that's a, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, what it started as is a telco hotel. So it's a place where the different telecoms co-located and interconnected with one another. Okay. And it is telco neutral. So it's not owned or operated by a telco uh, because no telco wants to go into another telco's facility. So in order for mm -hmm. them to interconnect, which is vital to their systems, and vital to our telecommunication system, uh, they need to be in a 
telco neutral, what was originally called a telco hotel. Hmm. Then they create this hub, this massive interconnection of systems. And everybody wants to connect to that hub. Internet service providers, stock exchanges, countless other, um, in a way, users of the web want to connect to this massive hub. So it, it almost becomes a massive interconnection of different participants in the internet, and it becomes a hub for the internet. There are eight in North America. There's only one in Canada, and it's 151 Front. Wow. And so we bought it then um, because we saw the opportunity to make up for one disadvantage our great buildings, which you're kind enough to acknowledge, didn't have. They were really good at accommodating people, but they were not good at accommodating equipment. Mm. You know, if you needed a backup diesel generator, no dice. Uh, I mean, we happily provide it, but there was no structure strong enough to carry it. And more importantly, there was no possible way to create a fuel farm adequate to the backup diesel generator, because if it's going to be adequate, you need a three-day supply of fuel. And that's a lot of fuel. Okay. So, so our thinking was, will, to the extent our users, our customers have sophisticated equipment needs, we can arrange for them to locate at 151 Front, and then we can connect them fiber optically back to our different buildings. Oh, uh, and hmm. that's really what we did. Uh, it was kind of similar to parking for us. Parking never gets you a deal, but if all else is equal and you have better parking, you get the deal. Right. Having the ability to provide access to an internet hub is never going to get you a deal, but if everything else is equal and you can provide access to that and someone needs it, you win. So, so this was the basis. We then expanded it to make a long story short and, um, um, and really created what is the the largest serving, uh, if you will, interconnection point in Canada's telecommunications infrastructure. Why? So there's only one in Canada. Why? It must be very difficult to create one of these things. It, and you know the interesting thing about it? It's not like people said, okay, let's build an internet hub. They evolved. This particular facility evolved because it was built by CN for the original telex facilities. Okay. And the reason it was built there is because the cable runs along the railroad mm -hmm. from coast to coast. So as the fiber started coming into Canada, the fiber backbone runs along the railroad from Got coast it. to coast. Mm -hmm. So this was a perfect place to create an internet hub. And it started slowly um, and it grew. Um, and it gained almost geometric momentum as the need for interconnection in our world Got increased. It. Is this so like the Renex headline is sells data center portfolio, but an internet hub is not, is there a data, data center component or maybe I just don't. An internet hub is, is, is a very intense form of data. So there okay. are multiple types of data centers. Um, what we had were really the interconnection hubs, um, that role in data center activity. There are other 
uh, more retail data centers. Yeah. They're, they're out in a field. Um, there's a whole bunch of equipment in there, but they don't need or, or contribute to the interconnection uh, in the world the way ours happen to and the way the other seven in the United States. And most of those, to my understanding, evolved. Right. There's one in New York, 60 Hudson. It's, it's a remarkable building, but it has evolved into an extremely critical uh, facility there. You know, I think there's one Wiltshire in, in Los Angeles. So there, there are seven or so. Ours is the eighth. So most of the internet traffic that comes into Canada f comes first into the United States. Right. Then it comes up to 151 front. Then it's dispersed east Everywhere. and west. Gotcha. There's another important <laughs> facility in Vancouver. And Vancouver's evolving today. Uh, there will be major cables coming directly into Vancouver from Asia. So an internet hub will evolve there. And the main reason we sold this asset at this point in time is we've taken it as far as we can, mm. given meaningful mm -hmm. local expertise. The capabilities you need to take it forward from here and you can take it forward from here, are really global expertise. This is why we found in many respects the ideal buyer, um, an entity with global capability, they can, they can build this facility more successfully than we can because they're operating globally, they have global relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I see KDDI, as it's called, um, I see them building meaningfully on this base. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a very perfect transaction. They paid well for it, but they're going to be able to add value to this asset base that we couldn't have. And uh, over a 14-year period, we did really well with this asset base and generated, created a lot of value and generated a lot of income. It's must have been fun to value an asset <laughs> yeah, like that, yeah. given the fact that, as you say, there's eight in North America, yeah. very unique, but yeah. very critical piece yeah. of infrastructure. It's very hard to value, yeah. and it always has been. Um, and we, as a public entity, we need to report our value every quarter. And, uh, and I would have to say that that element of our portfolio was probably the hardest to value. But fortunately, as the market evolved, the demand for these kind of facilities became greater and greater and mm. trades actually occurred. Mm. And so, those trades allowed us um, to, have a base. to have a base of understanding. What, do you remember what you bought it for? Yeah. Uh, this is this is no word of exaggeration. We paid 192 million okay. for 151 front in 2009. It yielded 10.2 percent at the time. Nobody, and that's probably too strong. Wow. Not many people knew what the hell it was, including mm -hmm. Allied. Um, we took the time to try to figure it out, and and we, I think we. We did, and but it was the scariest acquisition I've ever made because it was not squarely within our wheelhouse. Um, but we really worked 
at it with, with very sophisticated input from both Canadian and U.S. experts. And we came to the conclusion that the need for this interconnection was only going to grow. Right. And if you look at, uh, if you look at the utilization of interconnection in the facility, it literally went geometric from about 2009 onward. And so it, it was a, it was timely. Um, but nobody understood it then and not many people were prepared to bid on it. When we put a mortgage on it, which we did initially, it, it, it was unencumbered when we sold it. Uh, we had to pay like 7.5%. Hmm. Again, lenders were scared. Of it. Everybody was scared of it. So in order to sell it, the vendor needed to offer it at a 10.2 unlevered yield. I mean, this is crazy. Right. And in order to fund it, we needed to pay, um, a very good mortgage lender, 7.5%. And, uh, and it, it sort of went from there. Um, and we, we expanded and we certainly have a cost base higher than 192 million, uh, when we sold it, but, right. but it, it was a very profitable, um, adventure. And I, I think we, we bought at the right time and I, I really believe we sold at the right time and, you know, reaffirmed our mission as a, distinctive urban office operator, owner right. operator. That's what we are. Yes. We're not a trader. We're not really a developer in the traditional sense. We don't develop stuff to sell it at a profit. We, we really try to create great opportunities for our customers through development or through acquisition. And, uh, you know, the outlook for acquisition and development in the next 24 months is probably pretty grim, but we're focused more on operations. That's really where the action is for us. Right. So, okay. So, uh, that was, I'm, I'm glad we, we got to start with that and I want to get into the core operations in a moment and mm -hmm. certainly the outlook, but, um, just based on that. So you bought that in 2009, 190 million, 190, some 192, million, I think 90, 192 million. And that was an interesting time too, where probably people were saying, oh, this next 24 months looks grim. And maybe that's one of the reasons the opportunity presented itself. Yeah. Are there any sort of like out of the box kind of strange things that you're thinking of right now where you say, okay, this could be the next internet hub? Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, to the, 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 the honest and straight answer is no. Um, even then it was, it was, it was kind of out of the blue. Um, but the aftermath of the global financial crisis in Canada was different than the aftermath of what I'll call the pandemic and the mm. subsequent recessionary environment. Um, we came out really fast. There were two bad quarters. I think it was the fourth quarter of 2008 and the first quarter of 2009. And it was scary beyond belief, right. but everybody was well-funded. Um, everybody was good at operating their business. It was just like the, the global financial system looked like it might melt right down. That was beyond frightening. Um, but once it became clear that the global financial system wasn't gonna melt down, and because of the stability of our financial system, um, we came out really fast in uh, in 2009. We're not coming out of this fast at all. I mean, right. whatever morass we're in, um, I think confidence has been more destroyed 
or, or, or has been destroyed for a longer period of time than it was in the global financial crisis. Interestingly, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Now, again, the U.S. suffered a little more from the global financial crisis than we did. Right. Uh, but, but no, what we're in now is a, uh, it's actually operationally not that challenging, but um, confidence has been crushed. Now, it, it, it will recover. It always does. I think it's going to take longer this time for confidence to recover than it did following the global financial crisis. I really do. And would you mind just not to harp on negativity, but would you mind just opening that up a little bit and diagnosing the like couple of the issues and challenges that office has? Well, office, the, the experience with office has been interesting um, pretty much from the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, I think when the outlook for office space became clouded uh, is at that point in the pandemic where we were clearly going to get through it um, successfully uh, with very significant loss of human life, which is always a tragedy. But we were going to globally uh, cope with this pandemic, um, then people started talking about working from home. That was when the confidence as it relates to the future of office space Mm. eroded significantly, if not outright collapsed. Uh, And that sort of continued through what I'll call the remainder of, let's call it 21-22. But interestingly, in 20. In the beginning of 22, the outlook was beginning to improve for real estate generally, office as well. I think office then was the least favored asset class early in 2022, but the outlook was improving. Then the interest rate inflation episode, the cyclical decline started, And the confidence was so fragile, it literally collapsed for office at that point. Everybody felt the outlook for office um, is going to be more severely impeded by this cyclical event Mm. than other sectors. Um, So we, we, you know, in about March of 2022, um, our unit price almost got back to NAV, Mm -hmm. interestingly. Uh, very, very close. And then it literally collapsed as the central banks, I think, quite rightly recognized they were a little late um, getting a handle on inflation. And the outlook literally collapsed from that point forward. Right. Um, so it is certainly a crisis of confidence. Um, I think we're also in a bit of a cyclical period of adjustment. Um, there is... Um, there is significant availability now, even in Toronto and to a lesser extent in Vancouver. Calgary, interestingly, is beginning to recover. Mm-hmm. Not dramatically, but it is beginning to recover. Toronto is still doing well if you have the right kind of assets. Mm-hmm. And Ally does without being immodest. Montreal is still doing well if you have the right kind of assets. And, and we do. Uh, Vancouver is still doing well. So 
the actual operating reality, while it's challenging, while it's you have to work harder and you have to work longer, uh, it's not that hostile. But the confidence it has just been crushed. Right. And, you know, everybody's looking for the easy way out. There is no easy way out. You've got to keep marketing your space to discerning customers. You've got to keep providing them what they want and need uh, for their most valuable resource, which in almost every case um, is their people. Um, fortunately, the cities are indeed coming back. Right. All you have to do is walk around in Toronto, in Montreal. Um, they're coming back discernibly. Vancouver and Calgary came back much faster. Um, oh, interesting. So, so it's, 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 it's interesting. But look, the, the outlook is, I think, generally constructive if you have the right kind of assets. I would also add most of the owners in Toronto have the right kind of assets. And when I say in Toronto, I mean downtown. I don't, I don't understand the suburban markets, but most of the owners downtown are strong, um, will work through any cyclical downturn uh, just as they have before. Right. Um, and what do you define as the right kind of assets? Well, everybody has their own definition. In, in Allied's case, it's, um, it's assets that are concentrated in amenity-rich urban neighborhoods downtown. Amenities are a big deal, everybody's favorite topic. No building is big enough to provide a full complex of amenities, but neighborhoods are. So downtown mm. West... Um, King and Spadina in particular, has an extraordinary array of amenities available to people within a very tight radius. Um, the well is going to open fully, I believe, in November uh, on a retail basis. King Toronto will open, I think it's in 2024 or early 2025. Um, all the retail users at King and Spadina are killing it. They're on literally on fire. They, oh, yeah. Uh, so it's out of control. Yeah, it, it, it's out of control. Again, it was out of control before the pandemic and now it's out of control yeah. again. Um, so and, and what is that? That's human desire to be in amenity rich urban neighborhoods. So um, so for Allied, that's that's the definition of being a ha I mean, certainly. Um, the towers in the South core, the towers in the core, the really good ones. Um, absolutely. I think the property that probably is, is riskier and there's not a lot of it in Toronto. There's some would be the commoditized assets that are drifting towards obsolescence. Hmm. Fortunately, there's been so much demand in Toronto, um, in the past decade, decade and a half that most owners have upgraded their assets. And the best example I can think of, and this is probably the most iconic office asset in Toronto, which is TD um, Center. When there was significant vacancy in that building, Cadillac upgraded it to lead EB Gold and lead EB Platinum. They literally, instead of sort of chasing the market down, they upgraded the building, reinvested in it massively. 
and, uh, and released it very, very successfully without compromising in terms of rent. Um, that's the perfect example. Uh, Commerce Court has done that once and they're going to do it again. Um, on and on and on. So a lot of the inventory in downtown Toronto has been elevated to compete with the new inventory. The mm -hmm. new inventory is definitely better. It's more sustainable. It's more conducive to wellness. Um, you know, we believe there's more amenity richness in downtown East and downtown West than there is in the core, but the core is pretty good. Mm -hmm. The core is pretty good. And those buildings are being elevated um, to the point where they, they can compete with the new structures um, pretty much head on. So, so we're in a virtuous cycle here that, that I think will hold us in good stead. Still, are there some weaker buildings? For sure. I'm not going to identify mm. them because that'll get me in trouble. Uh, but but th there, there are weaker buildings and there are stronger buildings. But because we've had so much demand for such a long period of time, most of the buildings have been elevated to their best possible state. And we don't have the kind of incipient obsolescence that you saw in Calgary. When Calgary went down, there are some great buildings there, but there's a huge number of buildings that are just, they're done. Their useful life is over. Um, they'll never again be competitive office environments unless mm -hmm. someone invests massively in them and it doesn't pay anyone to invest right. massively in them. So they'll be converted to hotels, they'll be converted to res or whatever. Uh, but, you know, Calgary is stabilizing. That much I can say. Um, Will it ever be back to the level of frenzy we saw um, in the last energy-driven cycle? Probably not. Will it be a viable office market going forward in Canada? For sure. Have you, have you noticed a significant change in either the tenant profile that's most active or even like lease structure, that kind of thing, tenant allowances? Like, What do you have to do to get some of these guys in a building? We haven't noticed a significant shift in the type of tenant attracted to our portfolio. Mm. We use the term knowledge-based organizations. It's useful. It's so broad, uh, it can almost embrace anything. These days, yeah. uh, These days. But, you know, uh, certainly tech remains, tech as commonly understood, remains a big part of our um, a big part of our user base, certainly uh, media, post-production, gaming, um, education has become mm. a huge part of our user base. And Northeastern University took the entire extension to QRC West on Queen and Peter. It's 90,000 feet, so it's not particularly big. Wow. But they took the whole building. And they are very excited about providing education to the next generation of Canadian knowledge workers. And they're doing the same thing in Vancouver. It's really interesting how much, if you will, education is becoming a business. Right. And, you know, we're lucky, in my opinion, to have an excellent um, university system in Canada, an excellent college system, but they can't, they can't provide the full gamut of education needed moving into the future. Mm -hmm. So you've got these non-Canadian organizations coming in and, and 
in a way competing, but but more importantly, complementing um, Canadian universities. You know, the Canadian universities can't educate all the young men and women who want education and who deserve an education. Um, and so it's actually fantastic. They're a big part of our tenant base. So th they're the ultimate in knowledge-based organizations. Nice. Uh, you know, we've seen a little bit of professional service migrate into our format a little bit. I wouldn't call it a trend. I think the professional services are still largely focused on the, the monumental core right. with, with the underground connections or the plus 15s in, in Calgary or, or what have you. Um, but, and, and the financial services are still largely concentrated on the monumental core. And for good, for good and valid reasons. I'd rather, I'd rather be in the internet hub like Flash Boys and just <laughs> hook, hook right into the NASDAQ though, the TSX. Well, a, a lot of, a lot of people, <laughs> fortunately, a lot of people have that preference. So when we look at, if we take the core, the monumental core, which I believe is permanently viable in Toronto, and we take Allied's portfolio, which I also believe is permanently viable, in Canada, they're slightly different value propositions. The core is monumentality um, connected underground. Allied's portfolio um, is really a little more human scale in amenity rich urban environments in a very tight radius, mm. where we have a degree of concentration that is either equivalent to or more than the vertical core, but we're just horizontal. Right. So if people expand, we can, we can help them. If people need to contract, we can help them. Maybe not in the same building they happen to start in, but within the complex. And the well now gives us added flexibility. King Portland Center gives us added flexibility. QRC West, which we've just expanded for Northeastern University, gives us expand, you know. And so that's been our goal from the beginning is to be able to provide better solutions to users who grow and sometimes contract. Um, and, you know, so Shopify is a great example. They ultimately contracted in relation to what they thought in 2018 they were mm -hmm. going to need. Is that the end of the world? No, that's happened with our user base many, many times. And in each case, we've worked with the user and helped them in a way get off the hook um, and find strong replacements, which enable them to get off the hook, but which put us in at least as good a position as we were in. In some cases, we've actually got stronger tenants. Right. And, uh, and we've been very comfortable accepting their covenant and letting the tenant that needs to contract off the hook, obviously at a cost, but nonetheless off the hook and they're delighted. So that, that contingent mm -hmm. liability disappears off their financial statements forever. And so we're very used to this. And what allows us to do this is the mass. If mm -hmm. we had one building, forget it, we wouldn't have a chance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but if we have, we have, I think we have 111 east and west of the core. It's very rare that we can't accommodate somebody's expansion or contraction need. It does happen and it kills us when it happens, but it doesn't happen that often. What are, what do you think in terms of how you have to shake up your operations um, just based on this current environment? Like, how do you think about the next 
24 months, the yeah. challenges and opportunities. And then to, to add to that, you guys are a public entity. Like how does that influence the decisions yeah. that you make in the planning? Well, first of all, we, we absolutely don't have to shake up our operations. Okay. And, and, and okay. that's a, that's a, we, in fact, we have been evolving our operating platform for almost a decade now. And nowhere or at no time did we achieve more than we did during the pandemic. Hmm. It was interesting. The pandemic cast a light on everything that was different. So it allowed us and many, many other organizations to see things within the operating platform that you couldn't see in a normal environment. And uh, so I, I would say, and this isn't said to be promotional, but the allied team is now stronger, deeper, and better composed than it's ever been. It's also younger. Not that I've got anything against old people. I'm very <laughs> supportive of older people, um, especially people in their 60s, uh, like me. Um, and um, But it is younger. It is, it is better composed. It's better coordinated. Um, we're, we've de-siloed. Mm. So... We have recognized and we've been emphasizing we're an operating business. Operations is everything. We're not an acquisitions business. We do acquire stuff, but only if it'll make us a better operator. We're not a development business. We do develop stuff, mm. but only if it'll make us a better operator. Everything is validated or not mm -hmm. by its ability to strengthen our operations. Um, so I think what we need to do in the next couple of years in particular, and have been doing in the last two, is we need to understand exactly what people are doing mm. over and above or as distinct from what they're saying, because there's a huge gap between what's being said and what's being done. And we've got to make our judgments based on what's being done. So... Our business is evolving at the ground level, at the grassroots level. We've got to know what tenants want, what they need, forget what's being said about whatever. Um, and based on that, we've got to provide them with what they need and want. Um, there isn't a massive shift in what the evolving needs and wants of tenants today. I mean, and the shifts are at the margin. There's a whole thing going on now. Tenants don't want to build out space. Oh. They want built out space to the extent they can get it. That's simply a practical response to a twofold reality. The twofold reality is it's very expensive to build out space and it's hard to quantify that cost if you don't do it for a living. Mm -hmm. uh, and number two, it takes time to do that. So tactically, certain owner operators are building their space out at their expense and then offering it to someone who basically can plug and play. So that's a tactical response. It started actually in Calgary, hmm. where the market was so challenged. And it started with small built-out units. Um, it's now evolved to Toronto, certainly, and Vancouver to an extent, 
um, a little less so to Montreal because Montreal has been a an upgrade market for decades now. So we've been upgrading space there forever. We've been developing space in Toronto for quite a long time. And uh, so that that's an example. Certainly there's some pressure on improvement allowances. Mm. Um, in some instances, we can and will resist that. Uh, you know, we don't need to build, and we're fortunate, we don't need to lease a building today if we don't get what we want. A great example is we, we refurbished the Lougheed building in Calgary. It's probably the best heritage building in Calgary and one of the best in the country. We simply won't compromise on that. Um, another building in Calgary that's a little challenged, not tier one, maybe it's tier two or even tier three plus, there will be more flexible. But again, we won't there compromise so much in throwing money at the tenant as we will giving them flexibility. Right. So I would say the tool we're using is on our on our buildings that are not fully transformed or, or are not at, at the highest level of standard within our world. The where we'll where we'll show flexibility is in terms of uh, term and indeed in terms of rent. We've got two buildings at King and Spadina, which is the most, uh, well, I mean, King and Spadina is astounding. Mm -hmm. And it's about to become more astounding as the well in King Toronto. I'm fired up. Open. I so, can't wait. <laughs> but we got two buildings over Honestly. there that are on development sites. One is 468 King West and the other is 379 Adelaide. Those are both sites where we have approval to redevelop. We're not gonna redevelop anytime soon. Hmm. But with there, uh, they're, they're great buildings. We're not going to put a lot of money into them and we're not going to give people huge allowance, but we'll give them great rent and great flexibility. And, and that's not because we're afraid of the environment. Not at all. It's because I can't give anyone tenure there. So I can't make it worthwhile for someone to locate in there for 10 years mm -hmm. and give them an allowance that would warrant their doing so. But I can say, guys, here it is. It's essentially plug and play, use furniture. You'll get a hell of a deal. Yeah. And you want it for a year, you can have it for a year. You want it for a year and a half, you can have it for, and it's not that we're compromising. It's we're simply recognizing those buildings ultimately will disappear. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so we're not, going to in, we're not going to invest money in them now and we wouldn't expect the user to, but there will be users for, oh, that's perfect. I can go in for a couple of years, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It's transitional and, space. And you're you're only going to charge me X? Yeah. Oh, okay. Done. Deal. And it, again, so you got to understand your asset base. Mm. Uh, you know, at the well, we're not compromising with anybody. Right. At QRC West, we're not compromising with anybody. Um, but there are assets in our sweat and tonic food yeah, courts. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. Rooftop patios. I, I, I'm very pleased. And I, I'm very I upset it. it's not it's not already available. Yeah. Well, it's, this summer. I think November yeah. is the grand opening and Allied and RealCan have done a great job as joint venture partners mm -hmm. on that on that asset. And frankly, you know, Woodbourne has done a great job with the rental res. I mean, uh, they, they really have. They're, they're creating, on Wellington, they're creating truly high-end rental residential space. On front, um, it's, it's larger, but it, it's, they, they've just done a fabulous job. So I, I think the, the key players on that site 
Allied, Real Cannon, and Woodbourne have done really, really well. Allied and Real Cannon, of course, own the commercial component, 50-50, yeah. and, and Woodbourne controls most of the res, although Real Cannon's part of some of the res with Woodbourne, which makes great sense for Real Cannon given its likely evolution towards more rental res mm. um, going forward. So that that was that was a 10-year project. Can't forget about about old Diamond Corp. A uh, Diamond Corp was there, yeah. They they Shout they were they yeah. were a big part of the land development play yeah. Uh, yeah. and uh, and made a big contribution there. So, so we're we're coming up against the hour and I want to be respectful with your time. You've been very generous. Um, I got a few more rapid fire ones. Yeah, for sure. I guess first one we'll say is, is you'd commented on this in the previous podcast. What are your thoughts on co-working space and what's happening there? Well, um, it's, I, it, wait, sorry to set the scene. There were reports of co-working becoming 30% of all office yes. at the time. Yeah. And so that I think was with a, the prompt of the question. And, and, then, and now there's a proverbial death clock on we, we work, work for sure. Uh, yeah. No, I, I think as I hope I said then, co-working is a viable business model. Uh, there, it's not a multi-billion-dollar business model, but it is. There is a need, mm. and it actually contributes to a healthy office environment. Was it ever going to? represent 30% of the inventory, not in a million years. And, and what's unfolded um, is clearly... So I, I continue to look at it as I did. It's a modest segment of a highly developed urban office environment. Uh, there is a place for it. it. There is a need that is served. Um, and I think people who want to serve that need can make a real business of it. But is it a world-beating, global, transformative business? Not even close. It is. I think uh, in 2019, you said it was an incubator for the rest of our portfolio, Correct. which is awesome. And mm. so we're happy within reason to support a little bit of co-working in our portfolio for, for exactly that reason. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, it's still viable. I mean, we work... I think we work expanded so rapidly and so unbelievably that I don't know that it could ever have survived. And, mm -hmm. and again, I, I, I'm just speculating. I don't have any inside knowledge. Uh, but I think there are other models that will continue to work. Right. Um, and will continue, you know, are they taking over the office market? Not even close. Right. Uh, not even close. A, a major... So the three big stages in your company, um, well, there's new stuff going on, but the, if we flash flash way back, there was the late 80s crash, there was the mass rezoning that took place, um, and then you guys going public in 2002. Yeah. Um, it, are you with, now we've got Olivia Chow in Toronto, uh, Doug Ford is doing things with the, what are they called, PMTSAs. Uh, are, are you guys looking to, um, to really take advantage of some of those? Like, are, are there any big policy changes coming up that you think that is not going to, not going to really change your. No, I, I, I tend to think that the municipal government is the most important government 
in relation to our business. Mm. The provincial government, of course, ultimately controls the municipalities, but but recognizing that it's really the municipal governments, and frankly and interestingly, it's really the ward councillors who matter uh, when you're creating new space, creating new environments, managing conflict within the community. Um, and, and what matters most to the ward councillors is actually what their constituents want and feel. So I think it continues to be incumbent upon owner operators like us to ensure that we're perceived positively by the surrounding community. If we can do that, the community, I mean, this sounds kind of, I don't know, almost silly and, and naive, but if you can serve the surrounding community in a meaningful way, you will get what you need from the planners, you will get what you need from the ward councillors, you'll get what you need uh, from the municipality. If on the other hand, you run headlong into the community, sooner or later, they'll they'll shut you down. You can't bulldoze. Yeah, you, you, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. so I kind of like the way it works. Now, my comments apply most to Toronto, where we do the most amount of transformative work. Montreal has a slightly different municipal system. Um, and but there we do more upgrade work, not development work. So right. so so we don't need the same. We don't have the same reliance on approvals. Here we have extreme reliance on approvals, and we will get them um, if we are actually earning the support of the surrounding community. It, literally, I mean. Um, so, you know, the ward councillors have you know Adam Vaughn was helpful to Allied, not because he was doing us any favors, absolutely not, but because his constituents were supportive of what we were doing. Um, similarly, Joe Cressy um, was supportive of the well, not because mm -hmm. he was doing Allied or Rio Can any favors, but actually we had managed, and, and here's where Diamond Corp played a huge role, in working with the surrounding community and getting their support for what was a very significant yeah. change in the neighborhood. Um, and they supported the height on the corner. And then we agreed to sort of slope down towards Draper and Wellington. So um, I don't think there's anything systemic in our political system that is going to impede the growth of cities. Um, I think Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, and Vancouver will continue to grow, will continue to evolve. And, you know, whether we like it or not, we're very good city builders. Canada is really becoming a country of cities. I think 80% of the population now is concentrated in five metropolitan mm -hmm. areas. Mm -hmm. That isn't to say that the country is irrelevant. In fact, I, I love the rural parts of Canada and uh, they're, they're essential. But our cities are really becoming the dominant organizing element in, in our country. Mm -hmm. and, and we're lucky as a relatively small country of 40 million people to have four, arguably six major cities of real consequence. Yeah, I tend to think of the quartet. But Edmonton and Ottawa can't be ignored. So 
Yeah, I think of the quartet, but others think of, I think they call it the NHL cities, which brings Ottawa right. and, yeah. and uh, right. Edmonton into into play. Um, Except for Winnipeg. Actually, Winnipeg too, now that I, I don't, I don't <laughs> I know like much about Winnipeg, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, my, my last question for you to hopefully leave it on a, maybe a bit of optimism, but advice as mm -hmm. well. Like this is a hard time for a lot of folks, um, no matter what you're doing, but there's office leasing people listening. There's, there's all sorts of folks listening and, uh, you know, you successfully made it through the late eighties and the early nineties. And then I'm not sure if there's a big real estate crash around the two thousands. It was, it, it didn't amount to a crash, but there was the dot bomb right. event, which did ripple through the real estate industry. Again, not for a terribly long period of time. Yeah. But yeah, the year two, I think it was the fourth quarter of 2000, if I remember correctly. It's sort of like we went from straight up to, oh my God, yeah. we're, in, we're in trouble here. We could be. Yeah. yeah. And all these, the so-called dot coms were just falling like flies. We were fortunate in Toronto. We didn't have many dot coms. Ottawa, interestingly, had more. Hmm. And the United States, of course, had more. And that that really sh rocked San Francisco. Right. So don't count San Francisco out. They've been rocked before. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and in, in 2000, they were literally rocked. Um, and it's a great city. It'll come back. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, they have some challenges beyond. Oh, right. Leasing, right now they look, but, they, they, they do. We yeah. all cities have mm -hmm. challenges uh, of of some consequence, not least of which is, you know, we could be heading headlong into a recession, and yeah. that's scary stuff. Yeah. So, with with that in mind, and with the context of you've been through several challenges and come out in, in a great position mm -hmm. over and over again. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody maybe more junior who this yeah. is their first moment? Honestly, and, and this is sincere. Um, there is a saying that someone came up with, uh, which is a little too glib for my liking, but it goes something like this. Never waste a good crisis. Mm. Now, that's inherently funny um, because it's hard to understand how you can waste a crisis. But I think the point there is a crisis, an economic downturn, um, a cyclical decline actually is a curative event. It is curing ills. Uh, it is curing excess. It is correcting imbalances. Um, it's almost evolutionary. It has to happen. And it hurts and it's painful. But the way I would advise all young people to think about it is try to understand what's being corrected, what excesses are being corrected. And in the case of what we're facing now, it's too many years of cheap, cheap, cheap money. Mm -hmm. There was too much money. It was too cheap. And it caused many people to make decisions that ultimately require rectification or, or adjustment. And the other, th so understand what's really happening and understand that it's actually part of a healthy, constructive process. As unpleasant as it is, it's kind of like the, the Bank of Canada wants to throw us into recession. Well, they're not sadistic. Right. They feel that has to happen in order for the economy to find a new and more sustainable balance going forward. So 
So think about it that way. It's easy for an old man like me to think about it this way. It's much harder for a young person, but I, I kind of went through it as a young person as well. And the other thing is, know for sure this will pass. Know for sure that in our society, our country, our cities, um, a new balance will be found. A new level of prosperity will again be attained. I don't know if in my lifetime anyway, and maybe even in your much longer remaining lifetime, I don't know if we'll ever see money as cheap as we saw it for the last couple of decades. It was insane. I mean, negative interest rates, that's insanity. Yeah. When you th- I, I, I still can't quite fathom how a negative interest rate works. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I get it, <laughs> but it's insane. And it's ultimately something that will precipitate excess and that excess will have to be corrected. So I think if I was a young person today, uh, I keep my, you know, I keep my head. I'd work very hard on what I do if I believe in it long term. I would try to understand what's happened, um, and I would, I would be confident, and and you will not be disappointed. You know, if you think it's going to be over in a few months, forget it. Right. But you know, two, three, four years will be in a a different environment. Opportunity again will emerge. The greatest period of opportunity I saw in my entire career was 2006 to 2000. Sorry, I've got that wrong. 1996 to 1999, after the collapse of the first half of the 90s. Right. That, the opportunity then was staggering. That's when you guys bought the oh, yeah. portfolio. Oh, and, yeah. And like everybody that, that emerged took advantage of opportunity in that period at Brookfield to an extraordinary degree. Allied did its thing, Rio Can, on and on and on. They all began to capture opportunity in 96. So there was nothing grimmer than the first part of the 90s, especially real estate, but period. But the five years that followed, oh my goodness. There, that's when right. great businesses were built, great fortunes were made. It was a period of unspeakable opportunity. Now, again, I'm looking back. It didn't feel that way at the time. Yeah. But mm-hmm. some people had the ability to say, whoa, I, there's something here. Yeah, some, I'm going for it. Summer always yeah. comes after yeah. winter. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, it is not fun, but it is necessary. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it, uh, I know, it parasites in, in the natural environment. Like, why do we have them? Well, we, we actually need them. Right. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, why do we have recessions? Because we need them. So just keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much. For okay, guys. Us. Thank you, Michael. My that pleasure. Awesome. My pleasure. Good to see you both. Great to see and you. And thanks again. You.